Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, many of you know our gospel partner in India, uh, Pastor JP, Pastor Jab Prakash. And he, um, he asked us to pray, which is unusual for him. Um, he doesn't usually just you know, sends us updates, but he specifically asked if we as a church would pray for a particular situation going on in India. In the eastern part of India, in the Manipur region, uh, there has arisen a, an intense, severe persecution. And it's something that's not been widely reported, uh, something the Indian government in some ways doesn't want widely reported, but uh, you have a situation in which aspects of the government are turning a blind eye to uh, militias that have taken it on themselves to persecute Christians with severe violence, with, with um, murder, with burning down people's homes, with, um, with even other just horrific things. And, and so the uh, situation is that the church in Manipur is undergoing severe persecution. Uh, there, are, there are kids going around right now without mothers and fathers that are being taken in by other Christians. Um, and the church in India is, is seeking to rally around uh, those in, in this specific region to receive them. Uh, really, some of whom are now homeless, some of whom have experienced violence. And uh, we know that the Lord um, makes all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And even persecution at times can actually testify to the spread of the gospel and the reality of who Jesus is as people see um, how firmly Christians are, are grounded in their faith. But he asked if we could pray for the protection of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. So Let's do that together today. Lord, we pray for our Indian brothers and sisters in the Manipur region of eastern India. Lord, we, we first of all pray for your protection over the church and its leaders. And we pray for, um, for your mercy. Lord, pray that you, that you would frustrate the plans of these militias and others who are seeking to do them harm. Um, we pray that you would hold them back. Lord, I pray that the government would do what it is called to do, which is to restrain evil and has not been doing. So I pray that it would, it would do that. And I pray that supernaturally you would do it, what is not being done and restrain evil in a variety of ways. Lord, I pray that you would also not just protect the church, but prosper the church. Lord, may the, the nation see, may especially those in this region see that Christians so believe in Jesus and the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus that they refuse to turn back, even in the face of severe persecution. Lord, I pray that, that it would be as in the first century, where you used this, even persecution, to spread the gospel uh, among the surrounding areas and regions. And I pray that it would be so in this case, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you uh, do not have a Bible, you can Google 1 Corinthians 6 ESV, or you can grab a Bible on the back table right there. And our commitment as a church is to teach passage by passage so that we bring all of God's word into all of our life. And recently, I've just been encouraged that God has been using this letter, uh, the letter to the Corinthians, in the lives of many people. I've heard we've, we've gotten stories of people um, being convicted and called to reconciliation or called away from sexual sin or freed from, from bondage as they've confessed something and are getting help for it. So we, we just want to come expecting every week, don't we, that the Lord is going to do something with that passage in our lives. We should never arrive at church thinking, good, um, I went to a worship service and then go home. We should always come ready to go, okay, what needs to change? What needs to be rearranged in my life as I encounter the Word of God today? And I'm I, I so encouraged that many in our church are leaning forward in that way and God's doing amazing things. So let's come expectant as we read that the Lord will do great things again. 
We're going to be reading in verses 12 through 19, 12 through 20, rather. And let's remember as we read, this is God's word. It opens with a series of quotations from the Corinthians that Paul responds to, in case you're wondering what those quotation marks are. They say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we take in, and take in this, this, uh, uh, this passage into our lives and allow our lives to be rearranged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as it, it seems that the fall has almost maybe kind of come to El Paso. Welcome fall. We got like one week and then it got hot again and now it's cool. It maybe, I don't know. We never know. But some of us have decided to just declare it fall and receive it as such. And part of my, part of my like joy of the fall is knowing that I'm going to be able to build some fires. Because I love a cold winter, a cold night with a roaring fire. There is nothing better than that. There, you've, the smell of the wood, the crackling of that kindling, the, the toastiness of the marshmallows where you manage to get the marshmallow toasted exactly right so it has just a little bit of a burn crust where you bite into it and it's gooey. It's just the best. Love that. If you're eating your marshmallows the other way, no, wrong. Half burned is the only way to go. Fires are a gift, are they not, in the middle of winter. But fire in the wrong place and the wrong time is incredibly destructive. Uh, did you know that 85% of wildfires that dominate our news headlines, that burn uh, hundreds if not thousands of acres, are caused by humans, usually by human negligence. People camping and not putting out the fire or starting a fire accidentally. And I remember this vividly where years ago we were going to go have a, we were looking into having a retreat at one of the, the Christian camps that was in the Rudo, so kind of Cloudcroft area. We were excited about it. We had great memories of how lush it was, how, how beautiful and green it was. And we we're like, oh, here we go. We're going to check this out. Only to arrive and find out Almost three-quarters of the surrounding area, area surrounding the camp, had been burned. There was severe fire damage. These beautiful trees that were once kind of towering and, and just felt like, ah, now we're up in the mountains. And this is a real retreat now. All of them just bare, 
lots of ash and black everywhere. And the, 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 the people running the camp were so apologetic, and they were like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, but, you know, we've had to rebuild ourselves, and this is the state of the forest, and it, it'll return, but it'll take years. And you just, I just remember the contrast between loving a roaring fall or winter fire and then seeing the destruction that fire in the wrong place and the wrong time can wreak across an entire landscape. Fire is a good gift, but fire misused brings severe harm. And so it is in our passage with sexuality. We see here today that, and this in the next passage, we're going to see that sexuality is a good thing. God created sex, and it, it, it is meant to, to warm us, as it were, to, to unite a couple together, to be a, a blessing in that relationship. It, it is this thing, in reality, that, that families are centered around, in a sense, and something that is good, that gives light and life, but it can be incredibly destructive when misused. And it will wreak havoc on relationships, on families, on spiritual lives, on even people's eternities. And so, this is what we're going to do today. Our world often believes that Christians are the, the fun police when it comes to the area of sex and sexuality. We're just the people running around going, don't do that, don't do that either, not that, nope, 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 nope right? That's the way the world treats us. Like, man, you guys are repressed. You're backwards. You're the worst. You don't want anyone to have any fun. What is wrong with you people? But in reality, the picture is reversed. We're the people going, hey, just an idea here. What if we keep the fire in the fireplace? And they're like, we can put the fire anywhere we want. And you're like, well, not going to go great. Hasn't gone great. What if we just keep it there in the fireplace? It's great there. Yeah, it is great there. It'll be even better across thousands of acres. You're just like, okay, this is not good. Right, this is, we are the fire police, in a sense, the, 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 the firemen in an age of pyromaniacs. That is what this passage teaches us. And so the main idea is through the lens of, of holiness applied to our sexuality. The main idea is our bodies are holy. Our sexuality has been made in our bodies to be holy, so we hold sex carefully. And when I say holy, the, the Bible, when it refers to holiness, really means set apart. It means our, our bodies have been set apart for a purpose. Our sexuality is designed by God with a purpose, so use it carefully. Now Paul covers three truths about our sexuality uh, today that, that emphasize that point, that we are to hold sexuality carefully. First, the holy creation of sex. Now, it begins, this passage begins with a couple quotes from the Corinthian church. Probably slogans from the Corinthian church or things people in the city of Corinth were saying. And the first is, all things are lawful for me. Meaning, there were some Christians who were going, hey look man, we're free in Christ now man. I mean, all the sins we've ever committed, boom, paid for by Christ. All the sins we might commit, boom, paid for by Christ. And, and, and we're going anyway. God's grace covers everything. So we can just kind of do whatever we want now, right? That is the culture. And it's a, a reflection of the culture of the city. Now, Corinth was, it was like if you took Las Vegas and removed its inhibitions. It was like a place that people from Las Vegas 
who go to Las Vegas would be like, Corinth, man, I don't go there. That place is nuts. That is a bad, bad place. In, in, in literally, there was a phrase in the ancient uh, Roman world to live like a Corinthian, to play the Corinthian, literally meant to just give yourself over to, to um, immorality with no inhibitions and, and no worry of the consequences. And even the Roman world, which could be promiscuous, was going like Corinthians, they're crazy. You do not want to go live there. And so this is the city that these Christians find themselves in. And they think, okay, well, uh, we're Christians now, but we are still going to live like the rest of the people in our city. And Paul responds in two ways. First, he reminds them that sex is more powerful than we think. His answer, his first answer is all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He puts aside the matter of sin, which he will cover in a second. But he says, listen, sex, in, sex is a good thing, but the way you use it can either be profoundly helpful or profoundly unhelpful. Um, one of my kids is four years old and is learning to play soccer. And at that age, it, the rules, everyone has a very vague understanding of the rules. They're... There's a couple things they get. One is this. That goal is their goal they're defending. The other goal is where they try to kick the ball. Everything else is chaos. And you have kids, and here's, here's what I've observed. You have kids that are just excited to kick the ball, right? They don't understand the rules. They're just like, yeah, I'm out there kicking the ball. And, so, and, and they, when they kick the ball, they get praise and everybody claps. And so they're just saying, I'm going to keep kicking it. Right? And so you, you often have kids that they're going the wrong way. Kick, kick, kick. And the parents are like, no, the other way. No, no. And, he, and they're smiling because they're kicking it. They're just like, yeah, I've got, I've, that's right. That's right. You're cheering for me. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. Look sexuality is powerful. And, and, and the Corinthians are going, look, I'm just kicking the ball here, and, and I'm, not, I'm not, listen, I, the ball's not over the line in the goal yet. I mean, come on, Paul. I'm not, whatever that was for them. I'm not over there in just rampant sin. I'm just kicking the ball a little bit. Just kicking the ball here, kicking the ball, just getting close. I'm not there yet, getting close, getting close. And Paul is going, look, you're wondering why you are not closer to the goal. You're wondering why you don't look any more like Christ. You're wondering why your marriage isn't going well. Maybe it's because you're kicking the ball the wrong way. That's what he's saying. It's not helpful. It's either very helpful or very unhelpful. Think carefully about what you're doing. And then he adds a second thing to this that is important. He says, all things are lawful for me. But he replies, I will not be dominated by anything. Meaning, your use of your practice of sex and sexuality unavoidably binds you to things. There, there is a, a good binding that happens, right, in marriage where two people are committing to, you could say it this way, enslave themselves in a godly way to the service of the other. You're basically, you know, the, old, the joke about, ah, my old, the old ball and chain wife over here, right? It's a terrible phrase. Because what's going on in marriage is actually the two people are binding themselves to one another. They're saying, where you go, I go. Like, richer for poor, better for worse. We are bound together. That's a good thing. Or you're going to be bound to something else that's not good. 
And that's going to unavoidably shape you and change you. And so uh, also recently with my kids, my older kids, they're doing presentation boards for something at, at school. And one of, their, one of the things that they had glued to the side of their presentation board was in the wrong space. And so I said, listen, we're just going to move it. And my wife, Jen, wisely was like, I don't think that's going to work. And I'm like, watch this. And so I go up and I began pulling this paper off, and I thought, the glue hasn't set yet. We didn't put that much glue on. So I began to peel it off and began to realize, yeah, like half of this is coming off and half of this is staying on the poster board. So I, and wisely, I, I, I could have wisely admitted defeat and told my wife, you know what, you're right. This is a bad idea. But I persisted. And so I just began to rip it, rip it, and I got like, this shell of the image that we needed to move that was half transparent because the whole back of it had been torqued off. And I was like, look, it's fine. And she's looking at the poster board going, I don't, I don't think so. It's not fine. And Paul is saying the same thing. Look, he's saying sexuality binds you. It enslaves you either to the right thing or to the wrong thing. And you end up bound the further you go in sexual practice or pornography, the more and more bound you end up being to the wrong thing. Things. You're gonna, you may be able to remove it, but there's going to be scar tissue in a sense. And I agree with many scholars that the modern day equivalent of this sort of temple prostitution in, that was so prevalent in that day is pornography in our day. And in Corinth, this is what things were like. It was common for people to go stop by the temple, offer a sacrifice, participate in worship, and then seal that with a visit to a temple prostitute. It was just common. This was not a special occurrence. There's even some scholarship that often if you threw a fancy dinner party in Corinth, at the end of the evening, your host would offer prostitutes for the guests. Or, this, this is nuts. In Corinth, there have been excavated water jugs in Corinth that were used just as water jugs with naked sexual acts on the water jugs. Right, this is the, the, the place, this is just ubiquitous. People are just living in this and nobody saw a problem with it. And I think the modern day equivalent to that in so many ways today is pornography. It is ubiquitous, it is widely accepted, you are made fun of if you don't participate in it. This is the way it is. And often when people are viewing pornography, looking at porn, I hear two things. One, I hear people say, it's not affecting anything. It's just something that I do for a few minutes, you know, maybe once a week, maybe every once in a while. Listen, I don't have any responsibilities. It's not like I'm going out and cheating on my wife. It's not like I'm, I'm not putting the kids to bed. I just occasionally do this. You know, it's not like it's affecting. I mean, I'm home by myself. What's it affecting? And Paul is saying, listen, I'm going to talk to you about the sin involved in a second. But let me ask you this. Is it helping? Pornography never helps you feel less lonely in the end. It never helps you feel more whole and, and connected to your spouse. It never helps you become a better father or mother. It never removes what you're hoping it will remove in terms of like boredom. It will, it, will only, it will only bring bad things. You're kicking the ball the wrong way, he says. And then the second thing I often hear is, well, it's, it's not like it does anything really that bad in my life. This is often with habitual porn use. It, it's like, well, I do it occasionally, but it's not like it's affected my life in some crazy way. And, you know, in fact, I can, I can stop whenever I want to. I can stop looking at it. It's not a big thing. It's not addictive. And usually I'll say, well, like, well, then stop doing it. 
and then they'll come back later and go, it's harder, harder to stop than I thought, right? Because it has a binding effect. And the longer you wait, the more bound you will be. So Paul says, be careful. Sex is more powerful than you think. And second, he also says, sex is more profound than you think. This is where he goes to creation. The Corinthians, in this case, were saying, look, 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 look. The stomach for the, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And their analogy was, our sexual organs are made for sex, and sex is made for the sexual organs, so it's just a biological reality. It's just what comes naturally, right? And so to deny yourself is to go against nature. These are just, this is the way that, that our bodies work. And, it, and in this way, Paul takes issue with that. He says, listen, you are reducing sexual activity to a base animal urge. And that is scriptural heresy. The Corinthians believed that what they did with their body and what they did in their spiritual life could be totally separate. What they did with their body was one thing. What they did in following Christ was another. And Paul is saying you cannot compartmentalize your sex life and spiritual life and think they are not tied together. And yet where Paul takes them to kind of counteract this is not where we would think he would go. He goes all the way back to creation and all the way forward to glory. He says the body is not meant for sex. The body is meant for the Lord. And this points to God's design originally. God created humanity in his image with design and purpose. And the purpose that God created humanity with is that they might image, that we might image God. Meaning that we shine the glory of God to each other and out into creation. And God rejoices over us. As we glorify God, we find our joy and satisfaction. And that turns us to the giver of the gift. And the giver of the gift delights to give even more and rejoice over us. And so you have this, this beautiful symphony of humanity and creation and creator all working in tandem to shout the glory of God in the universe and, and satisfy the deep longing in our hearts to do that work. But... To misuse it then, to misuse your body, is to deny the very purpose of creation itself. And then God, then Paul says, not only that, but the Lord will raise up our bodies. Because evidently some just thought, okay, well, um, here's the deal. This body's going to be gone, right? And in heaven, I'm just going to be a floating spirit. And some people still think this today. My body's going to die, I'm just going to be a floating spirit. And so, therefore, what I do with my body doesn't really matter. It's just going to be shed and left behind like a shell. I'm going to soar as a spirit into the air. And so whatever sins that body committed, well, whatever, man. But you're leaking left behind. I'm going to glory. And Paul is saying, no, no, you misunderstand completely. In glory, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will not destroy your body. He'll renew it. He'll restore your body to the way it was meant to be. Which means your body for all eternity will have dignity, value, worth, and design. So be very careful what you use it for. Here's what this means. Sex is so much more profound than we think in this culture. It is not just two piles of skin and bones and biological urges thrown together. It is the image of God radiant with the glory of God in the universe when lived out according to his design. 
it either shouts the glory of its creator, the creator of the stars and mountains and galaxies, it either shouts his glory faithfully or it tells some twisted or shows some twisted aberration of who God is and what he is like to the universe. And here's what this means. It's so common in our day to say it's just blank. It's just sex. It's just porn. It's just one hookup. It's just one night. But the reality, according to 1 Corinthians, is that it is not just anything. Because our bodies were made full of dignity and full of purpose. And we either use them according to the purpose God made them for or we misuse them contrary to his design. That's the first thing Paul says. Second, he points then to the holy union of sex. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, I don't know about you, but again, he zigs when I think he's going to zag. I did not expect him at this moment to bring up union with Christ and prostitution. This is not where I thought this was going. But Paul is actually connecting two incredibly profound truths together. He's taking the truth of union with Christ and the truth of the union of sexuality and showing us together what they mean. And the first thing he says is sex has more to do with Christ than you think. You might think, again, well, that's separate. Here's Christ over here. Here's sex over here. No. Paul reminds them of a a simple truth that they would all agree with. You have been united with Christ, right? Everybody's like, sure, yeah, I get that. Okay, so follow him. If you have been united with Christ, your body is part of the body of Christ. Okay, still tracking. So then he turns and says, do you want the body of Christ united to the body of a prostitute? All of a sudden, whoa, whoa. Even as I read that, there's something to me that's like, oh, man, this is... If you think this message is weird for you, think about how weird it is for me to say this stuff. Right? This, it is inherently uncomfortable. Like that, that shouldn't be. Uniting the body of Christ in this immoral, sinful act. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying this. When you close the door and turn to immorality, you carry Christ with you behind that closed door. Think of it this way. Imagine a a man intends to have an affair. He intends to do it. He invites his adulterous companion over to his home only to realize, oh my goodness, I forgot we had just had an anniversary party there last night. And there are wedding photos all around his house. Him and his wife on their first date, him and his wife smiling from the altar at the church, him and his wife somewhere in the mountains of Colorado on their honeymoon. Oh, and then now they're his kids who went with them back to that that spot that they went to on their honeymoon. Him and his family at this place. Him and his family on vacation together. Do you think in that moment that adulterous man is going to be able to go through with his affair? Not without running around the home and flipping every photo over, right? But here's the reality. If that man walks into a house without a single photo of his wife, 
he is no less part of his wife than in a house full of her photo, right? He is part of her. They have been bound together. And so it is right to say then he carries his marriage and his wife behind that closed door as well. This is what Paul is saying. You are forgetting. You are forgetting what you carry behind closed doors, Corinthians. You are part of Christ's body. You may not always be aware of it. You may not always live like it. But you carry Christ into your workplace and into your home and into your bedroom. So his challenge is this. His challenge to us is this. Are you carrying Christ anywhere you shouldn't? He goes with you. Then he says, in addition to the fact that sex has more to do with Christ than you think, he he gives some further rationale. Sex is more uniting than we think. Now, I will not belabor the biological point Paul is making related to becoming one because the point is obvious. And should you have any questions about the biological realities, Steve Prescott will answer any questions at the end of the service. You can do a class for anyone that needs that information. Paul is doing something profound here. He points back to God's original design. He points back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the reality that in marriage two become one. And in Genesis, that phrase doesn't just mean sex. It means, means every possible sense that the man and woman, the husband and wife become one. They become one in life. They become one in possessions. They become one in body. They become one in home. They become one in parenting. They become one in emotion. All of it united together. But in the, in the Roman world, people thought that you could separate out your life. Contrary to the design of God. They thought, okay, well, you should have a wife or a husband, but your wife or husband, your legal spouse is for producing children, for running a household, and for maintaining your social standing. But if you want a romantic or sexual relationship of pleasure, that's what prostitutes and affairs are for. Or if you want someone who stimulates your mind and helps you think and and you debate and talk with on those deep levels, you want friends. You want a circle of of people who you relate to and talk philosophy with. And so you separate out. I've I've got my household over here. I've got my sexual relationships and romance here. I've got this over here. I'm, I'm all compartmentalized. And Paul says with Genesis 1 and 2, no, no, this should not be. And in fact, it cannot be. Because here is the reality. When you are united in sexuality, it changes you. And it changes even your brain chemistry. Right? You are, chemicals are released that bind you to that person. It changes the way you think. It changes what you feel. Have you ever wondered why when somebody starts sleeping with somebody else, all of a sudden they're like, you know what, yeah, all these decisions seem like great decisions. And then you wake up later and go, that was not a great decision. That was a terrible decision. Why did that happen? Because sex did what God designed it to do, which was bind you to the person and unite you on multiple levels, not just the sexual level. That's what it does. You can't make it not 
do that. And our culture is on this constant quest to remove, to slice out sexuality from every other aspect of life. But it can't be done. It cannot. God designed it to do something specific. God, look, in marriage, sexuality is a gift because it binds you to your spouse over and over in beautiful and healthy ways that, that cause your relationship to flourish and your family to flourish. Right? That, that is a good thing, but binding yourself to the wrong thing, to the wrong person, to a, even this, that the research is in, that this even happens if you're looking at porn on a computer or addicted to reading unhealthy, spicy romance novels, whatever, your brain begins to wire itself to that. And Paul is saying, be very careful then what you bind yourself to. Be very careful. Now look, I, I do not mean at this point that there is not hope for those who have sinned. There is all the hope in the world. We're going to get there in just a minute. Please don't, don't think like this message is just about condemnation or this passage is just about condemnation. There is the gospel coming right around the corner. But Paul wants us to sit and wrestle with this for a minute. Sex binds. It was designed to do it. So are you binding yourself to something you should not, to someone you should not? Third, the holy presence of sex. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, again, not where I thought Paul was going to go. I did not think sexuality and the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit were going to be like the way to approach things. But the Lord knows better than us. And so this, this is actually an incredibly meaningful and important connection that if you can make, you will never see sexuality the same way again. Paul posits, Paul argues that sex is more about the spirit than you think. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Bible gives us something beautiful. It, it, it reminds us that God doesn't just save us from our sins and then drop us off at the nearest bus stop. Like, hey, your record's cleared. I've given you legal standing. Good luck out there. Here's 20 bucks and a bus ticket. That is not what the Lord does. And in the ancient Roman world, that's pretty similar to the way the Pantheon operated. First of all, you had to approach the gods. The gods never approached you. You had to go approach the gods. You had to make sacrifices. You had to do all this stuff. And even then, you didn't even get to approach the god, like Aphrodite or whoever, to make your request. You basically offered things so that other holy priests who were ritually pure and done all the stuff so they could approach the presence of that god for you and make your petition. All right? And here's the kicker. The Greeks recognized, Romans recognized, that God wasn't always there. Right? So if you visit on an off day, like Aphrodite's not in, it's like, ugh, sorry. You know, you have to come back in a year or whatever. When is she going to be back? Uh, not sure. Can, I, can she call me? Not really, you know. Can she come to me? No, she doesn't make house calls. Sorry. Right, this is, this is the way the, the, the Romans approached the pantheon. But Paul is reminding them of a powerful countercultural Christian truth. In Christianity, 
When we are saved, the presence of God comes to dwell in our very hearts. Meaning this, we don't go to a temple, we become a temple. That was unlike anything in the ancient world. And so Paul is reminding them, listen, listen, you have the presence of God. You look in the Old Testament, over and over, sacrifices were offered, and once a year, one person could enter into the Holy of Holies. But because of Christ, every single believer not only has the right to approach the throne of God, the presence of God comes and dwells in their very heart. It's true. Amen. Amen. And so as a result, Christian, you are set apart. You become a walking temple. And Paul warns you, Paul warns us, do not misuse what has been set apart for a particular righteous and holy purpose. Now, I'm going to take a risk here because this is the best illustration I could come up with. And I hope everyone will understand, I'm not in any way disrespecting this flag. In fact, this illustration is about honoring the flag. This hangs in my office, or sits in my office rather, and it was given to us by a dear family in the church, a dear man in the church, and this flag was flown on the 4th of July in Afghanistan a number of years ago. It was a precious gift given to the church. And so it sits in our offices as a reminder to pray for our, our military service members and their families, to thank God for the sacrifices that they have made, um, it is a helpful reminder, but it is a, I think it's right to say, a set-apart reminder. There is a kind of set-apartness to this that is appropriate and right. What would you think if next Sunday you walk out those double doors to the, uh, the backyard and where we normally have a rock, we just use this? If you're... If you're thinking rightly, you should be going, what in the world? You should be tracking every staff member down and going, what are you doing, right? There's, there's a right kind of anger that would be created in your heart. Like that, that is not right. Why? Why does that happen in your heart? Because you know that is set apart for something special, right? Look, when I see this flag, I get emotional because this is, I remember that final shape of the flag that was on my grandfather's coffin as it was carefully folded and handed to my grandmother as he was buried over here at Fort Bliss Cemetery. Like this, this is a set-apart thing, is it not? And it should be honored as such. Like I'm, I'm for all the flag regulations, man. I'm for like, every once in a while they're like, well, maybe we're too stiff on the flag regulations. I want to be able to wear a flag onesie or whatever. No, 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 stop it. It's set-apart. Okay, at least that's my two cents. And look, Paul is reminding us as Christians of something we often forget, which is this. You have been set apart. You have been made holy by the very presence of God. So would you use what is holy and set apart as holy as a, as a doorstop? Would you misuse something so precious? That's the question Paul is asking. Why would you then take this holy thing that God has worked redemption to create and miss? 
Use it. And so the question with every, every question about sexuality, people are always like, well, can I do this? Can I do that? What about this? What about that? Here's the real question. Is this a good use of God's holy temple? Would he rejoice over it? He is there with you. It's a sobering reminder, but it's followed quickly by a gospel reminder that sex is more about the gospel than you think. Verse 19b says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Now Paul is referring not to creation, not to future glory, but referring to redemption. Redemption is the scriptural truth that we have been bought with a price from our slavery to sin. And the Bible contains probably the most heart-wrenching and beautiful illustration of this in the prophet Hosea. I encourage you to go read it. In the, in the scriptures, God says, my relationship to my people is like this. Hosea is a prophet and he marries a woman with a bad reputation. And he loves this woman, but she leaves. She takes a series of lovers. She ends up in a downward spiral of shame. And eventually she ends up destitute and about to be sold as a slave on the auction block to pay off her debt. And she sees Hosea. Now what do you think in that moment? Do you think she's going to assume he's there to gloat at her? To say this woman is filthy. She deserves everything she gets in this moment. No, he puts his hand up. He pays the highest price. He purchases her. And perhaps she still might have fear. He's, he's going to take me home and beat me. He's going to abandon me on the side of the road so he can ensure my death. He's going to do this. But do you know what he says instead? This is summarizing the whole book of Isaiah. Essentially, the prophet comes to her and says this. My bride, let's go home. He purchases her that she might be his bride again. That's what Paul is saying. You were bought with a price. But Christian, if you are in Christ, this is what the Lord has done for us. We have all, through committing sin, been spiritually unfaithful again and again. But he has pursued us, God has pursued us, and just as we stood on the auction block in slavery to sin and under judgment, he raises his hand and walks forward and pays the purchase price. And he pays the purchase price, not with a handful of shekels, not with the deed of his house, but with his Holy blood. That is what the Lord does for everyone he calls his own. And in the end, he buys us and tells us, let's go home. That's what the Lord has done for us. And I am so eager that we take hold of not only maybe appropriate conviction over uh, matters of sexual sin in a culture that has gone crazy, but that we also take home as profound and even more profound than that, more, if we feel even more than that, the forgiveness of Christ in Jesus. I was reading this, this week in my devotional something relevant, and uh, Jonathan Edwards has this phrase that I loved, he says this. He says, although the blood of Christ washes us from our guilt, yet tis the spirit of Christ that washes from the pollution and stain of sin. Owen Strand comments this. 
And Jonathan Edwards contends that Christ's blood also purifies the filth of sin, meaning we are fully made new. No taint or stench of unrighteousness remains for the children of God. We may remember our past and feel filthy. We may close our eyes and be able to recall to mind terrible things. But if we have confessed these sins to God and trusted Christ for forgiveness, we are not what we feel. We are not filthy. We are washed by the blood of Jesus. Look, this, this gospel reminder comes at the right place in this passage. Brother or sister, if the weight of your sin threatens to overwhelm you, remember this. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.11, as we just read, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And look, friend, if you are not in Christ today, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, this is an invitation. This is the best invitation. Because to all who find themselves on the auction block, in slavery to sin, under the judgment of God, fearing what will be discovered by their spouse or by their friends, by the, by the Lord on that last day, who live in fear or shame or bondage or enslavement, to all of them, Christ says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are stained, and I will wash you. Come to me, who have lost your purpose, and I will set you apart again. Come to me, who are all unrighteous, and I will make you righteous through the blood of Christ. That is the invitation of God this morning, friend. Won't you come? We begin our service every week with that invitation, come. Come to Christ. You today, let, let, hear me when I say this, you today, no longer how, however long you've been dealing with what you've been dealing with, you today can go from the, the, the auction block of slavery to the home of Christ. Like this. And I'm begging you, please do not hear me say, listen, Listen, you're, you're stained, so you better get out there. You better spend a year cleaning your life up and doing good deeds and then come back to church and then maybe we'll talk about you getting cleaned up now. We're not saying you go wash yourself. Try to remove the taint of sin. Try to earn a better name for yourself and then you come back. No. You can't do it. Nor does Christ tell you to do it. He says, come to me. He says, let's go home. And last but not least, sex is more an opportunity than you think. And so the passage ends with a profoundly hopeful note. As Paul says, so glorify God with your body. Your body and the way you use it is an opportunity. Every moment of every day, you have an opportunity to glorify God, to reflect his image, to shout the glory of his design into the universe. And let me just say this, I think that the way that Christians relate to sex and sexuality is perhaps the greatest evangelistic opportunity in our generation. Because when we bring the gospel to bear on the area of sexuality, it creates new people. We become people who refuse to label others self-righteously as sluts and whores the way the world does. 
but we recognize that all of us are sinners and all can be offered hope in Christ. We become people who see our bodies as full of dignity and value and worth and purpose and design and are therefore beautiful and good. Christians have the theological ability to think better about our physical bodies than anyone in the world. In a world of shame and you don't look like this, you don't look like that, you use your body this way, you use your body that way. Christians are the only people who with the help of God to know how to respond and how to think about their bodies. as full of dignity and value and worth. We become people who then see singleness and sexual self-control as a way of saying, in a world who chants again and again, sex is God, sex will satisfy, sex will give you life, sex will give you hope, we say to the world, Jesus is better. What about this? Jesus is better. You could have this, Jesus is better. The world has no idea what to do with that. Because they keep serving a God year after year, month after month, who lets them down and who enslaves them and beats them up. And we serve a God of freedom and peace and joy. And last, for married couples, we become the kind of people who see marriage and sexual expression in marriage as great gifts, as good gifts, but not ultimate gifts. Look, the ultimate gift is union with Christ. The ultimate gift is that God himself dwells with us. The ultimate gift is life. That somehow, as we're going to talk about next week, there is something the Lord holds out to us in eternity that is even better than sex. And so we say, man, thank you for the gift, Lord. We want to use it well and rightly, but you're better. We say, too, Jesus is better. All right. So let me, let me end with this. <sighs> True life confession. Everybody in the pandemic bought something crazy and expensive. Didn't they? I mean, I'm just asking. Did you guys? Or is it just me? I think I, I did. And what I bought was a very fancy and expensive fire pit. It's really cool. I could show it to you if you come to my house. And, and we, man, we made so many memories around it in the pandemic. It was kind of like the thing to do where you couldn't leave your house for a while. We like went out and had a fire and roasted marshmallows and we would have, you know, all kinds of fun. Except I did not, I did not think about one thing in advance. I did not think about the fact that I had, I don't know, what were they? Like, like a toddler and two young children, and two other young children. No, a baby. It was a baby, yeah. I had a baby, a toddler, and a young child, and a fire pit. Like those are the two things somehow I didn't put together until the fire pit was there and hot. And I was like, uh-oh. Because what does every kid want to do with a fire? Get as close as they can, right? Would you give a kid a stick with a marshmallow on it, what are they going to do? Man, they're going to stick that thing in the fire. It's going to be great. And so repeatedly, this is what our evenings look like with the fire pit. Oh, my gosh. Isn't this great? I love the fire pit. Hey, 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 don't touch that. Do not touch that thing. Buddy, buddy. Okay. Sit down. Isn't this fun? Are we having a great time? Stop touching. They're like. Oh, man, look at that marshmallow. We're making such great memories with our family. Here, Jen, get the camera. Get the camera. Bring it over. Stop touching. No, like, that's what it was over and over and over again. Do not throw your toy in the fire. Do not throw the marshmallow in the fire. The fire has enough wood. You don't need to put more sticks in it. Now it's popping and crackling in our face. Right? This, this is what my life was like. 
And it was a constant reminder of two truths. Fire is wonderful and a gift, but fire is also incredibly dangerous. And what I tried to parent my kids through was this moment where they, even at a young age, had to learn. You have freedom, you have the ability to either enjoy the fire or enjoy a night in the emergency room. Those are the two paths before you, son. And I'm going to be along for the ride for either one of them, so please pick carefully. And so it is with this area of sexuality. Christians are not the people saying, nobody do anything, nobody look at each other. We're not those people. We're the people who say sex is a gift. It is amazing. It is a, a, a way, not the only way, but a way of displaying the glory of God in the world. But it also can be incredibly destructive. It can burn down marriages. It can burn down homes. It can burn down churches. It can burn down acres and acres of lives. So Paul says, Choose carefully. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And I'm going to have you stand. And here's what we're going to do. John's going to lead us in taking just a moment both to remember, remember to examine ourselves appropriately in this matter. And then remember to hold the truth of Christ's forgiveness. So, you want me to do that? You're getting set up. Do you want me to do it then, John? Or you got it? Huh? You got it? Okay. The last few weeks, we've had some really challenging passages, both to preach and to listen to. Because, not, well, you did a great job, Ricky. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, but the Lord has been bringing conviction in a lot of areas. I've had lots of conversations over the last couple of weeks of conviction coming as direct result of studying these passages. And so here's our encouragement. It's likely that over the last couple of weeks and even today that the Lord has brought uh, many of us to a place of conviction in a particular area. If we look back a couple of weeks, maybe this is uh, a conflict in a relationship that resulted in kind of the breaking, the breakdown of that relationship. Maybe there's, uh, there's uh, reconciliation that is yet to happen. Maybe you've been judging people unbiblically or maybe not judging biblically, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Maybe there are patterns of unrepentant sin uh, in areas of your life like pride, unwillingness to reconcile, sexual sins. So here's our encouragement. Search your heart now. Take a minute. If you need to open the word and kind of be reminded of what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there any area of my life that you want to shed light on? Is there any area of my life that I'm trying to keep in the darkness, but you want to bring to light? And then I have an encouragement for us. So let's take a moment and just go before the Lord and ask him to shed light on the dark places. of conviction can be heavy in our lives. It can feel like it's weighing us down. So we want to provide a couple of opportunities 
and suggestions for how to walk through a process of repentance. First is pray. Pray now and ask the Lord for his help. If he's brought areas to your mind of conviction, ask the Lord for his help. He will draw near to you and he will help you. Next, don't keep it in to yourself. Tell somebody about it. Tell somebody you trust about it. A great opportunity for this would be maybe be in a community group. A community group is a place where we hope that community is being built and you trust is being built. So that might be a good place to start for somebody to look, uh, maybe, maybe for somebody to trust. Um, what I'm not saying is don't go to the next community group and just like throw everything out there. And then the other thing is if you're a community group leader and you're receiving that, Somebody's wanting to confess sin, and you're, you're the person that's, that's receiving that. You don't have to have any of the answers. You say, you know what? Jesus died for that too. <laughs> and then get help. We are always, our doors and our phones are always open uh, to help walk through these processes together. If you're not in a community group, this is just one of the reasons that we think it's a good thing to be a part of a community group. Because it's a place that you can build relationship and go in, be in patterns with people you trust of confession and be reminded of the assurance of pardon we have in Christ. But maybe you need prayer at this moment. Maybe that, maybe the weight, maybe something Ricky said today, maybe something is, has weighed heavy in this moment. You're like, I can't wait till Monday to get prayer for this thing. Come up to us. Come up to Ricky. Come up to Steve. Come up to me after the service. Come up to somebody you trust in the, in the service and Lay that burden at the foot of the cross. What the Lord wants today is for you to experience freedom of him taking your burden on his shoulders. Him showing us mercy. What grace and mercy found through Christ. Holy Spirit, would you now do the work that only you can do as we sing. Lord, help us to not leave here today unchanged. Help us to remember the grace and forgiveness found in you. Holy Spirit, make us people that are quick to listen to what you would have to say and quick to point our friends and our brothers and our sisters to you. Let's sing together.